0: Oh yay oh yay oh, The judicial yay. power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there's any more questions, we have to provide an argument in this case. All right? persons
1: having business before the honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to give their attention.
0: Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps.
1: And I'm Will Bode.
0: So, Will, uh, we just released an episode on Friday uh, in which we talked about the Biden Supreme Court Commission, uh, on which you were a commissioner and for which I was a witness. And it's an episode we had been looking forward to doing for a long time. But as often happens, our timing is less than perfect because we launched that episode Friday morning and uh, very shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court issued uh, what is almost certainly going to be one of the most important decisions of the whole term probably not the most important, but we'll see. And uh, that was uh, a decision in Whole Woman's Health, uh, which is uh, a case coming out of uh, Texas's heartbeat bill, SB8, its novel effective ban on abortion after six weeks.
1: Uh, Yeah. And obviously this is a case we've been following uh, pretty closely. We've done several episodes about it. And so now we get to see what we were right about, what we were wrong about, what the court was wrong about. I will say, by the time the dust has settled on this term, I'm not sure this is going to make the top five in importance.
0: Yeah, it may it may not. I mean, it there's qu- it's quite likely it won't even be the most important abortion case that the court will decide this term. I mean, certainly not if the court ends up choosing to uh, overrule Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case. But it's a big one. Let's try to give people you know who maybe haven't been listening some context. And there, there actually were two decisions on Friday, one of which is much shorter than the other. But so how did, how did we get here? Just the capsule version.
1: Yeah. So the capsule version is that earlier this year, the state of Texas, influenced by uh, certified legal genius, uh, Jonathan Mitchell, passed SB 8, which creates a lot of restrictions on the ability of women to get an abortion, and it's probably unconstitutional under current precedent. But more importantly, maybe, uh, or more relevantly, has a bunch of civil procedure stratagems that makes the bill both very punitive, it allows anybody with no connection or traditional form of standing uh, to sue for a minimum of $10,000, every person who aids and abets each abortion, uh, that's $10,000 per aider and a better per abortion. And because of the way it's devised, it is difficult, and we'll talk about whether it's impossible, but it is difficult to figure out how to bring a challenge beforehand in federal court, as opposed to being forced to sort of go through state court, get punished, and then try to sort of set the punishment aside, because it seeds away much of the state's own power to enforce the law to these unknown private people with no particular connection to the Abortion, thus creating a kind of like, yeah, sort of mystery about who's going to enforce it and where and how. And
0: and just to be clear, the purpose behind these kind of novel provisions, I don't think it's really contested. The purpose is to make it harder to get pre-enforcement federal court review. Yes. Um, this is, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, devious law that was designed to create very few, eliminate opportunities for potential plaintiffs to have the right person that they could sue in order to get the constitutionality of this law evaluated prior to an enforcement action.
1: Right, and part of its effect- I mean so it's what's what's it's sort of what's devious about it is the way in which it unites something totally commonplace with something very exceptional. So it is totally commonplace in a way that there are ordinary civil lawsuits that implicate constitutional questions where it's totally normal that you just don't get to raise those beforehand. You have to wait until the lawsuit starts and litigate them in state court, like libel lawsuits, where you just have to you have First Amendment sort of restraints and what, you know, First Amendment protections, what you can say, but you just have to wait until those go through. That sort of happens normally organically in like a not that high profile set of cases all the time. So in a way, the core insight is unexceptional. But then here's a the state legislature, not just letting that happen accidentally, not just in a small number of cases, but. Seeing how big of a loophole they can make that, whether they can turn that into the the loophole that swallowed Roe versus Wade.
0: Yeah, and you know we've talked about this and the sort of difficulties involved in uh, challenging it in prior episodes. You know, and there ended up being kind of two tracks here in which uh, litigants were trying to uh, challenge the law. So one track was actually the government. The United States government came in, Department of Justice came in, and Sued the state of Texas, saying that you know, you know, with various theories under which the the government could come in and sort of defend the constitutional rights of um, people in Texas, and you know, saying that this was unconstitutional. And the reason that that's important is because states enjoy no sovereign immunity vis-à-vis the federal government. So the federal government can sue a state. You and I can't sue a state unless the state has said. You can we can sue the state
1: right but sovereign sovereign to sovereign or at least actually it's asymmetrical the u.s yeah. can sue states states cannot sue the u.s yes yeah. um, yes so so although the timing is important uh, so it's the first thing that happened is that a group of private plaintiffs tried to sue a whole set of people to try to enjoin the law ranging from the governor of texas even though he's no longer has any enforcement authority to a judge to a clerk to a set of other Texas officials who are going to emerge in the season finale uh, with a suddenly important role in this case, but they tried to sue a whole lot of people, a private person who they thought might sue them, and were meeting with mixed results, and then and then little luck at the Fifth Circuit of the Supreme Court, and then the United States comes in to say, "Well, okay, maybe we can, we, maybe we can backstop this." You know, if if nobody else can sue, maybe the United States can sue.
0: Yeah, and um, then importantly, the, the court had refused, the Supreme Court had refused to issue a stay in joining the law. Preventing yeah. it from going into operation. So the court let the law go into operation on a five to four vote with
1: Chief Justice Roberts joining the liberals uh, on that earlier ruling, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Yes. So and then after after these two different tracks have been set up and after the Supreme Court had on the shadow docket uh, refused to join the law from going into effect, thus prompting a lot of uh, controversy and Justice Kagan's first use of the phrase shadow docket her dissent, the Supreme Court then took what I think was a, a a very good and wise step by all people's lights, which was to try to put this case on the on the regular docket. To I don't remember the whether the district's filed one or the court just came up with this on its own, but to to grant cert, even though the Fifth Circuit hasn't actually ruled yet, so it's called cert before judgment. Here the case in the merits with extraordinarily expedited uh, briefs and argument so that they could actually try to unpack this and see. What they thought was going on, and so specifically,
0: you know, what was going on was the district court had uh, denied the various, you know, private parties and government, Texas government defendants' motions to dismiss. That was on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which uh, there's a doctrine that uh, lets people take interlocutory appeals of denials of motions to dismiss on sovereign immunity grounds. And then the court said, "Skip that. Let's just go ahead." and resolve it and you know schedule it for, for argument you know earlier than a normally granted petition would. It would have probably normally been by the point at which it was granted, it would have been argued, I don't know sometime in 2022 pressed forward. Uh, I think a lot of people were expecting there was the court announced they were going to release opinions you know, a couple weeks ago and everyone was sort of geared up for these cases to come down then. They didn't do that, but then they announced uh, opinions were coming last Friday. And people thought it was likely to be uh, these cases, and uh, it was. So they did. Court did get these out, you know. Uh, especially given that this is, as we're going to see, a divide, pretty closely divided court, sharply divided court, got them out more quickly than you'd normally expect
1: yeah. for so the, a court d- this divided. Before we get into the merits, do you have a view about whether they came out <laughs> fast or slow? So I don't know if you, there was a, in just a mayor's dissent, she has a line where she complains about the court's delay in allowing this case to proceed and how it's had catastrophic consequences. And the majority has a rejoinder in a footnote where they say, Justice Sotomayor charges this court with delay resolving this case. In fact, this case is received extraordinarily solicited at every turn. Uh, you know, We ordered briefing, heard argument, issued an opinion on the merits, accompanied by three separate writings, all in fewer than 50 days. So I guess it depends on what the comparator. This is faster than a, a normal case,
0: right? A normal yep. case would have been argued in February, March, whatever, and they would have released an opinion in May, June. Yeah, late June, maybe for a divided case. So it was faster than that. Whether they should have acted more expeditiously, I think, to, is hard to disentangle from one's views on the merits of yeah. the case. I think, I think if the court, so the, I mean, the court could have done a couple, a couple of things. I mean, one, the court could have stayed the operation of the law. Right, the court could have said the law can't, the Texas law can't go forward for now. Let's maintain the status quo because, by all accounts, I think Texas abortion providers are are not currently providing abortions that would fall within the strictures of this law for fear of ruinous civil litigation and the uncertainty about about what would happen and so given that uh, it does seem like you know there's a good argument they should have done that given the current state of uh, you know constitutional doctrine put that aside again given that given you know that this does seem to contravene, you know, existing Supreme Court precedent, I think, you know, acting even more swiftly than the court acted would have been advised. But I think that as we're going to see, it's just really hard for the justices to kind of disentangle those kind of questions from the
1: ultimate merits. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering also if, I mean, so there were a couple weeks there where people thought the decisions were going to come down any day now and they didn't. And I, I'm kind of wondering, were the decisions ready and was the court delaying? Like, was it delaying until after Dobbs or was there, you know, or were they really going as fast as they could? I guess this is well certainly not as fast as they could i mean supreme court justices <laughs> they you know, weren't working late nights yeah they
0: i mean they they do a what they're going to do right they're i mean they and you know there're things that they could do right they could you know you can issue a short per curiam and you could say you know further opinions to follow i mean there are multiple opinions in this case we have a majority you know partial judgment of the court by Justice Gorsuch. We have a separate opinion by Justice Thomas. We have uh, partial dissent by Chief Justice Roberts, partial dissent by Justice Sotomayor. And so traditionally, you know, they they tend to just wait to release a case until all the, you know, separate opinions have been written or ready to go. I mean, you don't have to do it that way. You could say they'll follow later. Yeah, I think that the criticisms about delay would have disappeared had the court, you know, had there been a stay in operation, you know, an injunction against the law in operation. Sure. And I think just to be, just to, so I don't get confused about the terminology, I think what, what happened was the district court had actually, you know, enjoined the law and the fifth circuit, you know, stayed that injunction. And then the question was whether the Supreme Court would, on the earlier shadow docket ruling, whether the Supreme Court would, overturn that Fifth Circuit or rule. stay the Fifth Circuit stay, stay the stay Fifth Circuit yeah stay I get the attorney, confused I when when talking these things through. court court didn't so do it's that. The court the whole women's health opinion is shorter than you would normally expect for a a case that's this divisive on the court the whole thing is I think f- you know including the syllabus is forty eight pages and that's with multiple opinions by different justices. And you could easily imagine a case like this. If, if this was a late June case that you know the justice is writing you know, 100 pages uh, of yeah. opinions back and forth, but there's some fairly short opinions. Before we get into the merits, why don't we just say what happened to the other case, uh, United States versus Texas? And this is the case you know, concerning
1: the, the, whether the federal government can sue Texas to enjoin this law. I feel like it's a little bit of a murder mystery, but the other case, the opinion says per curiam, the writ of certiorari is dismissed as improvidently granted. The application to vacate stay presented to Justice Lido and by him referred to the court is denied. Justice Sotomayor would grant. So that means that they wanted to hear the
0: case, and now they said we shouldn't have heard the case. Basically, that's sort of what a dismissal as of the petition. Yeah of the writ, so, uh, as improvident, we granted means. Yes, yeah,
1: so this is called a dig, and I yeah. feel like it, this is an important thing. Is so digs really come in two categories: your fault and our fault. So there are cases that get digged because actually there was no jurisdiction below, or the papers didn't do a good enough job of explaining to the court you know what was really going on. Or sometimes they they overclaimed about you know what the paper case implicated something. Or in one great case where the advocates sort of showed up and started arguing a totally different theory than they'd gotten granted on so It was sort of a bait and switch, and the court said, well, "We're not going to let you do that." So there's there's some digs where there's like a sense of shame in like having been the clerk or the lawyers responsible for the dig. The other set of digs are, no, no, this is a perfectly legitimate cert petition. <laughs> we granted it for the right reasons, but now that we see where we are, we regret getting into this and want to get out again. Yeah, uh, please, sort of please don't make us decide this. Yeah, or we yeah we've decided we decided we'd rather just uh, yeah we regret getting into it. Obviously, we don't know which category of dig this is but it certainly could be the second and i guess that now having given those two categories th- there was a funny thing at the oral argument in the united states case uh the solicitor general uh, elizabeth Brelager, said sort of at some point like one of the reasons they were here was because of the court it seemed like the court wasn't going to find it was they, they filed you know after the denial of the stay in the Holman health case in the first place and she said part of the reason we're here is because it seemed like there was no other avenue to challenge the law but if the court were to find some other avenue to challenge the law she didn't say, you know, we'd be happy to give up this suit exactly, but she sort of applied it. She was like, you know, wouldn't be a, that much skin off their nose if uh, I went away. So I do wonder if the that's also part of what's going on. As they said, well, we we granted this as a backup in case we couldn't find any other valid plaintiff, and since we found a few in the first case, as we'll talk about, they decided that was good enough.
0: Yeah, but what what we don't know from this is could this work someday? Is yep. this a weapon that a future administration could still use under the right circumstances? You know, does a majority think that you know this suit kind of seat, suit can't proceed? I mean, there's lots of there's lots of arguments one could imagine the majority agreeing with as to why the why the suit couldn't couldn't proceed.
1: Right, and I, I'll say this is sort of both understandable but also kind of unfortunate in that the United States suit is just there was just much less precedent about fundamental questions like. What is the nature of the United States' cause of action, and what does it extend to? How broad is it? You know, what are the limiting principles? How does this interact with with equity? There are some court of appeals cases, and just very few, but not that many, and not that many Supreme Court cases because the United States doesn't do this that often. So on the one hand, we really could have used some precedent clearing it up, like like we just are much more at sea about how these suits are the United States type suits are supposed to work. But that also could have been a reason that I kind of. A minimalist or sort of small C conservative approach would say (laughs) there's just a we're sort of more at sea over there, and so we won't uh, say anything about that. We don't have to. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a striking thing about the court is
0: how much they're willing to dodge questions, avoid having to decide things when they don't want to, and there's reasons that that. As you say, it could be good. Maybe it's mostly conservative. Maybe it's avoiding fights. Maybe it's cowardly. I mean, just you can, depending on the case and depending on the context, you can paint it uh, in different ways. But the court, you know, for whatever reason, they don't tell us. Uh, Even even Justice Sotomayor, who who disagrees with the dig and dissents, doesn't tell us why. Right. Right. She just it just says that she dissents. Yep. So that's unresolved, but we do have some resolution. In a, the whole a lot of position. resolution yes a lot of resolution although we don't we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the lower courts after this but but we you know yeah. we have the court resolving
1: who at least
0: can potentially be sued and who can't be sued uh right. in this kind of reinforcement challenge
1: right so an oral argument i think one of the one of the themes that emerged and that caused many people who supported the challengers to be sort of more optimistic or at least less pessimistic than they were before, one of the themes that emerged from a lot of the justices was, well, there's got to be something you can do, right? That that sort of a total allowing the scheme to sort of totally close off just review review seemed, seemed like something was wrong with that. But there was this mystery over who, who you could sue, and the, you know, the petitioners had a range of options. They had, they'd sue the governor, even though he wasn't responsible for these suits anymore, but Justice Kagan sort of thought, well, we'll just, just sue him. I think maybe the most prominent theory was to sue either the judge or the clerk who would be hearing these cases in state court. So just say, like don't, don't docket these cases or don't, don't
0: hear these cases, because they would be unconstitutional.
1: Right. And in a way, yeah, yeah. either because the case would be unconstitutional or because we all know the purpose of sending these things to state court, that's sort of, you know, that's part of the problem uh, is is that we're depriving people the right to federal review. There was this private individual, Mr. Dixon, who's wrapped up in there. So you could at least get a judgment against him saying he can't sue people, although, you know, would that stop other people from suing? That was less clear. And then there was the United States suit. And then there was, I think, the possibility that many of us had... uh, Lower on our bingo card, although it's the one the court uh, eventually picks, was well, there's also they'd they brought into the suit several other uh, Texas officials, I guess in charge of of medical licensing, especially, under the theory that they might also be responsible for enforcing SB8 in in sort of licensing decisions. And now the court tells us, at least eight of the justices agree, four members of the majority uh, plus the four dissenters. Uh, agree that yes, you can sue one set of these people, and it's the licensing officials, not the governor, not the clerk and the judges, not Mister Dixon. But yes, to the to the Texas.
0: Yeah, just to be clear, there's not agreement of eight that you can't sue the other folks. There's just right. but there is consensus, uh, near consensus around the licensing officials.
1: Yeah, actually, so can just, we, just, do, do we, do we can we break this down just to make sure we're we're yes. So so eight to one, you can sue the licensing officials, just yeah. as Thomas thinks you can't. Yeah. Right.
0: Partially in um, that sort of his
1: he, the way he reads Texas law. Yeah, right, exactly. And five to four that you cannot sue the clerks. The four dissenters will all let you sue the clerk. Maybe five to question mark on whether you can sue the judges. So the majority says you cannot sue the judges. I think the dissenters don't take a position on the judges or at least they aren't. Once they let you sue the clerk, they're not as sure that you can sue the judges. That's my reading. So uh, you will. The question of Who thinks you can, whether anyone thinks you can
0: sue the state court judges is a little unclear to me. Um, I read Justice Sotomayor's dissent as not clearly answering that question. There's some language that you could read as sort of suggesting it might be okay. But then the majority opinion, uh, the Gorsuch opinion, uh, in a footnote, footnote says, Justice Sotomayor agrees with the court regarding the proper disposition of several classes of defendants, state court judges licensing officials and Mr. Dixon who's the private party and I guess I didn't totally get that out of the Sotomayor opinion I don't but but I also don't see a, a clear statement
1: that she disagrees with that so yeah I guess I mean the dissenter you don't have any obligation to be as clear about about those things or and I read the chief Justice's dissent for four as saying you know he definitely disagrees on the state court clerk and on the Texas Attorney General because the Texas Attorney General arguably has some authority like the licensing officials so he would allow them as additional kinds of defendants and I see him as definitely not taking a position in favor of the state court judges or Mr. Dixon and just the Sulomir's dissent is a little a little harder to tell so we have 5 to 4 on some some defendants we have 8 to 1 on the state licensing officials and then the majority claims it's unanimous and the other officials, but I'm not sure the dissent agrees with them, but whether it's unanimous. And I guess now it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. I mean, it may be that that was where people landed after conference and it just didn't get written in a way
1: that was clear enough. Yeah. Well, and we can get to this, Well, maybe now's the time to talk about it. Part part of the puzzle about the clerks and judges as defendants is, I mean, part of the puzzle is sort of how we think about their role, because we often think about them as as sort of Neutral people who just docket the suit. You know, when the clerk dockets the suit against you, it's nothing personal. They don't even they don't have a view that the suit should succeed. They just they just put it on the docket. But there is, uh, and there's some back and forth about this. Ex parte young had suggest had said something about how the, a suit against the machinery of state court justice would be outside the scope of Ex parte Young, which seems like so the majority says clerks and judges, they're all part of the machinery of justice. Can't sue them. Yeah.
0: And Ex parte Young being the case that says, just again, as a reminder for people that Later. Trying to play along from home, that you can sue exec, state executive officials to enjoin them from enforcing unconstitutional, allegedly unconstitutional laws
1: despite sovereign immunity. Right. Then there are some later cases, at least one of which the opinions fight about, where the court seems to allow a suit against a state court. They don't talk about expiry young. It's a different case, but they seem to allow a suit against a state court. And so the majority says, well, that we didn't allow a suit against a state clerk, and that's the thing we're fighting about. But the dissent says, well, look, if we allowed a suit against a state court, notwithstanding the ex parte young dictum, that seems to reason we would also allow a suit against a clerk. So that's part of why then, but like, do we allow a suit against a court? We're still unsure about that. So part of the confusion seems to be from like multiple levels of of inferences from precedents.
0: Yeah. My big picture reaction is regardless of what ex parte young said or didn't say, right? Ex parte young is not. Clearly dictated by the text of the Constitution, it's something that the court had to kind of work through, and it worked through that in a context of a state law that was perhaps not designed. I don't, I don't know the background between the purposes by the law, but at least was effectively made it very hard for people to challenge the constitutionality of this railroad law because you had to risk facing facing these ruinous fines. And the court, you know, figured out a way to make you know, enable people to get their constitutional challenges litigated without having to be in that kind of impossible situation, and you know the court did that, and it's something that I think you know I'm sure maybe you have arguments in the other direction, but I think a lot of people think has been a kind of a sensible resolution and has uh, worked reasonably well, and so the way that the majority kind of approaches this case as if the exact contours of Ex parte Young are set in stone rather than. Sort of like taking some responsibility for figuring out the way in which these doctrines have to work in practice uh, in order to effectuate constitutional rights. I don't. I don't
1: admire. I, I, so I'm not even sure that's right. At what the majority opinion is doing, although the maybe how Justice Gorsuch thinks about it, I'm not sure it's how everybody who joined the opinion thinks about it. So you, part of what the court did in Ex parte Young is they recognized it would be bad uh, and maybe an, a constitutional problem if there was no remedy in federal court. And so they looked around for kind of the closest thing they could justify under existing law that seemed plausible and came up with the set of ex parte young remedy. And in a way, that's the majority ended up doing here too. They recognized that if they said absolutely no pre-enforcement review in federal court, there would be something problematic about that. And so they found a route to pre-enforcement review. Now it's not the route, it was not the petitioner's first choice, second choice, third choice, or fourth choice of routes. And it may not give them some of the things they want, but it is; it does give them something. And so I think part of the question is: is when we're thinking yeah, about the young lesson.
0: But but yeah. isn't the kind of takeaway from this opinion that if Texas had just written a slightly more genius law, if if Jonathan Mitchell had just been a little bit cleverer, or they had listened to his advice a little bit more in designing the law, then you could effectively foreclose uh, any. Well, pre enforcement so, review. If you just said, okay, whoops, we screwed up by still leaving some residual authority in the in the, the the medical licensing officials to enforce enforce this. And so that's going to create this little window of daylight. But if you get rid of that, you're out. Because I, I take that right. as the much bigger takeaway. And and so that's why I think it's important not to just say, okay, well, this is this is a win for providers. I mean, if it's a win, it's a very, very narrow one and so it's a tentative it's- one.
1: I think it's more I think it's it's also it's more tentative in both directions. So page fifteen. Still further viable avenues to contest the law's compliance to the federal constitution also may be possible. We do not prejudge the possibility. So I read the majority to not tell us what would happen if they go back and amend the law so that the medical providers can't be sued. I mean, among other things, we know there's that United States versus Texas possibility hanging out there. Yeah. and But I assume not. they didn't just say that. They could have just said that if that's what they had in mind. But I mean, the court says you can't sue
0: clerks and judges, right? Is there anything in the opinion that suggests to you that they would revisit that conclusion in a in a world where there's no other proper defendant
1: for pre-enforcement, a pre-enforcement challenge? My guess is no. So again, we don't know what they mean by that. My guess is no, although I, I don't think there's anything else in the opinion that tells us that. Although, frankly- from the things which this Kavanaugh said at oral argument, I think if there were no other option, he might reconsider the, the clerks. But there are still more, op- you know, there were like, there are dozens of other options people came up with, you know, as this case was going on, ranging from federal interpleader to, you know, different to creating an exception for younger abstention. There's just like, there's even more options sort of like currently off stage. So this is something the court has often done in the jurisdiction stripping context where they sort of, They will sometimes let the court strip let Congress strip the court's jurisdiction over Supreme Court cases, but they'll say, ah, but don't worry, there's still this outlet over here. And we're not saying what would happen if Congress took away this outlet over here. And they just managed to avoid really saying how far it goes for hundreds of years. I think this is in that in that tradition of kind of evasive court power preservation.
0: Yeah, maybe. Although, you know, if I were if I were a lower court, I would certainly read this as suggesting, you know, there's not really an avenue here. Uh, even if they've maybe left themselves some wiggle room to say, well, maybe there still is, uh, yeah. still is some wiggle room. And you're right well, that uh, there is yeah. there is still the possibility of suits by DOJ, depending on you know what they do when that issue is actually presented and decided, rather than dismissed as improv- improvidently granted. We don't know what the answer is on that, and we also we there won't necessarily in every instance where a state might try the strategy there won't always be a friendly Federal administration to challenge,
1: right? No, I, I certainly I don't think I don't want to uh, oversell this as a as a victory for the prevailing party. Uh, I think all along, you know, people who were people who were very optimistic after oral argument when the court seemed sort of more disturbed by this law uh, and then disappointed by this opinion may have may have misunderstood what the court cares about. You know, I don't think the justices at the the justices who were concerned about this law and joined the justice Court's opinion. It's not that they were like lying awake at night worrying about the rights of pregnant women in Texas. It's that they were worried about the power of the Supreme Court. So finding some path to say, "Look, we're not gonna, we're not gonna promise you that you can uh, totally shut us out of the process. We're keeping our options open," is very important to the Supreme Court, even if that option, you know, is one the court may never use in the future and doesn't even provide a huge amount of relief in here and now.
0: I take both the Sotomayor dissent and the. The Roberts dissent as being very concerned with that question, that question of you know judicial supremacy, Supreme Court respect for the Supreme Court's judgments. I didn't get as much of a flavor of that from the majority, you know, the Gorsuch opinion, and maybe that's lurking there, and maybe that's the explanation for why they they find this avenue. Um, but did you did you take away a,
1: a sense of that? Not in the face of the opinion. Uh, so partly, I'm taking that away from the comments from Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett or are, 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 are argument, that seemed to be what they cared about and what people thought was going to drive them into the into the other side. And I read Justice Scorchage's I mean, I read Justice Scorsese's claim as having been, look, we don't need to twist the law at all here because as it happens, we look at the law, there is an avenue to challenge it. We're not going to prejudge whether there's anything else. Now I'm not even sure that's true. I think the majority might have twisted the law a little bit to to find this avenue. But but no, I, I agree that's not on the face of the opinion. I'm uh I'm engaged in a critical reading. Yeah.
0: I think that might be kind of from the perspective of the providers and the challengers, that might be the kind of more optimistic way to read this, which is still an avenue. And maybe if there's this avenue disappears, maybe there'll be some other way. But I guess I, I certainly didn't read the opinion as having a lot of enthusiasm for ensuring that everybody always has an avenue for, for pre-enforcement review. I mean, the, the opinions, the majority stresses that, oh, there's stuff happening in state courts. That could be fine. So, So I don't know. I mean, I think that it does raise this hard question, though, of like, is this strategy going to work in other contexts? You know, I don't know if you saw over the weekend, Governor Gavin Newsom of California said he was, you know, I have no idea whether he's actually going to be able to make this happen, but he said he was going to work with the legislature to come up to kind of copy this scheme to uh, enable similar kind of lawsuits that would be directed against uh, people who distribute assault rifles and ghost guns, you know, the kind of untraceable weapons. If that happens, that would certainly be interesting. It would put the court in a spot where it would have to, you know, have to maybe more closely if it you know if it, if it concludes, if it thinks that those laws are infringing on second amendment rights, then it would have to really, Revisit the question of like, do we really mean? You know, there's no, there's no avenue
1: here. I've already taken the unpopular stance with you that I, I do think the court would treat the Second Amendment question, the procedural questions in the Second Amendment case, totally the same as how it's treated abortion, the, these abortion claims. At least, at least now.
0: What about? And you know, don't fight the hypo. But what about a state that passes some law that targets some disfavored church? And the effect of the law, whatever the specifics, the or you know, target some disfavored kind of religious practice. The effect of the law is to shutter those churches, possibly four months, while the state courts deal with uh, potential challenges uh, as the, you know, state churches and pastors and so forth are unwilling to, unable to remain
1: open given the threat of ruinous civil liability. All right. So I I need to f- start fighting the hippo in a second, but before I fight the hippo, I still think the court would treat that case the same way as a law shuttering abortion clinics. Pro, or I think that's I think that's nuts to believe. Okay. I know. So, but here's the thing: is I think the Newsom thing perfectly encapsulates this. Is so far as we can tell, it's not all clear he can e- even this is going to work. So, first of all, the bans he's describing seem more clearly constitutional under current Supreme Court precedent than what Texas has done. So it's already like. All right, you know he may he may not fully understand the strategy. It's not clear to me he really wants to get rid of all executive authority over the over the sale of ghost guns, right? So for this to work, he has to repeal any ability to criminally prosecute anybody for having an unmarked firearm. Does he really want to do that? Not obvious. And then finally, it's not clear to me that the California uh, Supreme Court has the same doctrine of standing that the Texas Supreme Court does. So for this to work, the California Supreme Courts would have to let you as a matter of state constitutional law. Create a cause of action in people with absolutely no connection to the weapons, and at a a a quick gander of California Supreme Court precedent, it's not clear to me that that they will do that. Yeah, and it's
0: also not clear he's going to pass the law or anything. But I mean, but like that's who cares, right? That's just it's just a
1: hypo, right? No, well, the point is that even the people coming, even his hypo doesn't work. His hypo is not an SB8 law, which shows that to me that nobody's going to successfully copycat this because even the people claiming they're going to copycat it don't actually understand what it is and aren't willing to do it. Yeah, but, but, you know, maybe it's
0: just, there's, but that's fighting the hypo, right? That, I just want to say, like, if you had, let's imagine all the sure. ducks were lined up and you had. I'm fighting your of, hypo. I'm, I'm just,
1: I'm okay. fighting. I, yeah. I'm just, I want to sure. point out that, that, yeah, part of my reason I mean, for fighting the hypo is that.
0: Yeah, I mean, state governors say dumb stuff on Twitter all the time and, you know, promise to do things they're not going
1: to do or can't do or never will do or, or, or whatever. Right. So but fine. that's, I, I predict that even people who are trying to do this will screw it up. That's part of my prediction. Now, that's sad. That, that
0: doesn't help your case, right? That just shows that you know the, the justices and the majority can make a cannier calculation that this tool will help the interests they care about and not harm the interests that they care about.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, it helps my prediction. So I do think part of the confidence of my prediction that the Supreme Court will not strike down a mirror image law is, I mean, I can be so confident in a part because I think that nobody will ever actually face them with one. Yeah, but imagine that they did. Yeah. They would find that. a way. They would find a way. Well, they found a way here. I mean, I, I, I think it's parallel. I not. I do not think they would say there's absolutely no way to challenge the church closing law, just as they didn't say that here. So what do you think way.
0: will happen? I mean, like if I'm a Texas state legislator and I like this law, I mean, isn't the next move to then just say, okay, let's amend it and you know make sure that these licensing officials don't have any. I don't know if there's any rush to do that. Why not? Why not? Just, you know. I mean, if, if I mean, if if you if the goal of the law was to you know
1: prevent this kind of federal court review, why not figure out you know do a quick fix to get that out of the way? Well, maybe the goal is just to I mean, so right now the law's in effect. I assume part of the goal is to let the law be in effect for as long as possible, so that uh, I saw somebody on the internet call the the referred to the uh, fetuses in question as Mitchell babies, but so that as many of the you know as many abortions were born as possible. So I think a, at a minimum, you'd wait until. And or uh, and/or to put financial pressure on the clinic so that they right. maybe can't, you know, can't right. reopen after being shuttered. So first wait and see what the district court does. See if it tries to grant. It's not clear that the defendants it can reach will justify granting a preliminary injunction anyway, because it can only reach defendants with authority over the, the medical licensees, not over the other people who work in the clinics. So. I you know I guess the thing is you might just wait see what happens and of course by then by by the time the Dell settles Roe versus Wade might be overruled anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, and that's kind of the weird thing about this case is is we're having this fight about you know when you can how you can assert your 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 rights um, when it's you know not clear that there is a majority on the court to continue to adhere to that. Understanding of, of what the Constitution protects as a right, and we may resolve that question, you know, six months from now. Right, this is December. I mean, we may have an answer. Yeah, uh, we may have the court saying in late June or early July. You know, it's time to get right. rid of Roe versus Wade. In which case, this will all have just been kind of a distraction. You know, kind of gum up the works a little bit, but it won't right. it won't matter anymore.
1: Yeah, although I think that's overly optimistic. I think even if even if Roe versus or pessimistic, even yeah, if yeah, it depends depends on your. Even on your if Roe and Casey are overruled, we're still going to have constitutional case law about abortion for decades. Um, even if it's no longer about the substantive due process right to get an abortion, we're going to have right to travel questions. We're going to have due process ex post facto questions. We're going to have, I mean, we're going to have lots of case law about this. And in some ways, the procedural shenanigans here might become even more important in that in that world. Yeah, that that could be in that world. Presumably, most of all of.
0: SB8 would be constitutional. Maybe yeah. there's arguments for right for why parts of it somehow wouldn't be, but I tend to think that yeah. if the state can completely ban something consistent with the constitution, it's not clear why they can't delegate enforcement of that ban to private citizens using a bounty system with attorney's fees and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think there is an argument still about the structure and amount of the penalties, so the you know, the fact that the the possibility that you can be repeatedly sued by many, many people with no restricada, that the damages are totally uncapped and unrelated to anything. I think there are some like interesting sort of like- Isn't there
0: like a limited amount that can be recovered though? Like you can't, like, you can't just like keep losing
1: money? Uh, well, according to the statute, once somebody has sued you and you've paid them, you can't be sued again. But the statute as, as I read it doesn't limit the amount you can be sued for in a particular case. Like, so if in the one case they grant a trillion dollars or something, then we get into that like, you know, excessive damages case law, maybe. Like the due process notice yeah. punitive damages yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Although I'm sure there's some members of the majority in the court who, you know, Indeed. don't necessarily agree with that line of cases. So yeah, I mean, there will be
1: litigation about it. I don't know whether
0: there's likely to be right successful constitutional
1: arguments. All right. So, and before, just before we leave this theme and before our people think I'm too much of a completely naive uh, idiot, can I just add, add <laughs> one? T- well, I just want to say you are just the right amount of completely naive idiot. Thank you. So my model, by the way, is not that the justices are uninfluenced in their procedural qu- cases by the substance. I totally think they are. I just think they are vulnerable to sort of framing effects. So like the first time the justice gets this procedural question, if the first SB8 law had come up in the church closing context, they may well have had different initial intuitions and written a very different opinion, but having written the opinion, I think they so believe in their own impartiality that they will that they will now stick to it even when they get the opposite case. So that is so like in an alternate universe where we've gotten yeah. SB 10 from Massachusetts first, we may well have had a, a rousing defense of pre-enforcement challenges, and then when SB8 hit, the court would stick to that and not yeah. back away from it. I mean, um, I, imagine, uh, imagine a, a state law that says you know, anyone who
0: you know, holds a public gathering during a time when local municipality has declared a pandemic shall be liable in the following ways, right? If that yeah. case had come up, let's say that case had come up six months ago in the height of the pandemic and the court was all getting worked up about that stuff. And had all these features, maybe just by accident, maybe by design. Yeah, maybe the court went out of its way to,
1: to rule for religious challengers in in some of the COVID cases, right? Maybe 18 months ago or yeah. Yes. that's, That's, that's what I'm saying. If that had been the first time they'd thought about these issues, I think they may well have, have approached the whole thing with a different frame of mind and may well come out, come out differently. I just think once they, once you get your views in, then you keep them locked even when the issue changes,
0: That's yeah, I, I mean, certainly there is a uh, certain amount of uh, path dependence there, and I guess you know the question is: Is there any chance they will actually be pre- presented with that hard case that is indistinguishable except for the constitutional right at issue? And in the way the way things work in practice, is usually it never works out so cleanly. You don't have the you're not have the kind of law school hypothetical where you just get the very very one fact. You know, a lot of things are different in the other case. Yeah, but. But I'm glad you at least that's sort of and I guess that's sort of like what I'm saying, which is that like had this been a different case with different interests at stake, even with the same legal features, I really find it hard to believe it would have come out exactly the same way, with the court being so parsimonious about the ability to sue. And I just I tend to think that my view is like, you know, a lot of fed Fed court's doctrine, these doctrines about, you know, sovereign immunity and who you can sue, I mean, they're not clearly answered. By the text of the Constitution. There's a lot of kind of background principles and other kinds of reasoning going into them. And I do think that a court should be wary of, of states that are, you know, explicitly saying, you know, our, our goal is to undermine constitutional rights that the court has recognized. Or, you know, the the phrasing that Chief Justice Roberts says about SB8. He says the law is contrary to Roe and Planned Parenthood, and it has had the effect of denying the exercise. Of what we have held is a right protected under the Federal Constitution. I'm sure he thought about that language very carefully. It's it's kind of an in artfully written sentence, but he's clearly um, that's a very artfully to, written sentence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's artfully inartful, I think. I mean it's I, I you probably could have written I probably could have written a sentence that accomplished the same thing that was a little bit clearer, but there's a lot of a lot of has and had, has had, have held, you know, could have written a better sentence. But basically, you know, trying to say like clearly not endorsing the fact that this is a constitutional right, but saying the court is something that
1: the court has held as a right. Yes. Yes. I do think that's a, that's an intentional formulation. I think you can find other uh, chief opinions where that's, that's a work too.
0: Yeah. But anyways, but yeah, what I was trying to, I got derailed by by that, but what I was, what I was saying is, you know, I, I think that if you're in that situation where, you know, you have a state court really trying to make, a right, recognized by the Supreme Court, really trying to undermine them, you know, make them meaningless, prevent people from from protecting them, enforcing them, you know, that's a case, you know, where the court needs to like take a broader view, right? Need to really think about, you know, have the, are the doctrines calibrated in the right way? Now we should I think probably they
1: did that, Dan. I think they did that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, they did that in a way that that you know, depending on what happens next, strikes me as quite unsatisfactory. I mean, they, the wind, the the window of daylight they left open strikes me as. Insufficiently large, but maybe you are right that that the they will pull crack they would crack the window open a little bit further if facts changed. But let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Justice Sotomayor's dissent on this on this point. It's quite heated. It's one of the more heated dissents by Justice Sotomayor that I've that I've read. And it's and that's saying something, yeah. She's, I mean, she's a she's. I think in my view, she's a pretty effective dissenter. I think that she has been more effective than some people expected her to be when she got on uh, the court. But sort of towards the end of her opinion, she makes some pretty bold claims. She says that the SB8 is a brazen challenge to our federal structure. It echoes the philosophy of John C. Calhoun, a virulent defender of the slaveholding South who insisted that states had the right to veto or nullify any federal law with which they disagreed, lest the parallel be lost in the court. Analogous sentiments were expressed in this case's companion, and they quote a uh, reply brief in a related case saying, the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution
1: are not the Constitution itself. They are, after all, called opinions. And I haven't double-checked the citation, but I'm virtually certain that she's citing something written by Jonathan Mitchell, the law professor who devised SB8, and, and the quote is not a – you know, not a random lawyer for an intervener. Yes. And this is an interesting interesting part of her opinion. She goes on to say, the
0: nation fought a civil war over that proposition, but Calhoun's theories were not extinguished. There's a lot to unpack there, and some folks on the right have sort of criticized her for what they say kind of conflating federal supremacy with judicial supremacy. And I do think there's something to that criticism Mm -hmm. here in that if you just – as written in the sentences I've, I've summarized, there is kind of a, a move between different ideas.
1: Yeah, and an important one. So the, the sentence, the nation fought a civil war over that proposition, the proposition about whether the Supreme Court's interpretations were the Constitution itself, is true in the opposite way, just as Sotomayor imagines. You know, there was a huge fight between a guy named Abraham Lincoln and a guy named Stephen Douglas about whether the Supreme Court's opinions should be treated as the Constitution. In Dred Scott. In Dred Scott. And it was Lincoln. Exactly. Who took the view that the anti judicial supremacy view? Now again, not anti federal supremacy, just yeah. anti judicial supremacy. Yeah,
0: I mean, in, in the way it's written, I think it's it's it, it maybe you know this is a process of rush writing. I presume she didn't intend to suggest that that sentence was the thing that the nation fought a civil war over, but maybe the sort of larger question about whether states can kind of nullify federal law. But I mean those those things are different and i think it's it's fair to point out that those things are different I, at the same time i do think it's it's a strong argument to say that this is both a challenge to judicial supremacy but also a challenge to federal supremacy that there is this right that has been a federal right that's been recognized by various actors and you know the purpose of this law is to you know weaken or diminish or remove the ability for people to assert that right right i mean there's not they're not totally different this isn't this isn't
1: totally a conflation of two different ideas. Well, I mean, is both, right. I guess it, it is and it isn't. It's hard to know. <laughs> there's both a sort of a naive level on which it's just a mistake to confuse federal judicial supremacy with state nullification, but then there is a more sophisticated level on which maybe Justice Sotomayor is operating where, indeed, part of the reason John Marshall sort of pushed aggressive federal judicial power was his belief that would pro- contribute to federal power more generally. So, yes, there is there is a complicated relationship between the two. So like doctrinally the two are very different, but maybe at some bigger picture sense, maybe they're maybe they're the same.
0: Yeah. And and you know, there have certainly been, you know, it, it seems like the the after historical moment to point to is the kind of desegregation era when, you know, the court was saying, you know, the constitution requires desegregation and people in various states who were themselves kind of looking back to Calhoun, right?
1: Yes, yeah. you know. Although why not the progressive era so like we talked a lot about this Ex parte young case the one that people are using as a model right that case emerges from the period between the civil war and the the civil rights era where it was the progressives who wanted to use states to regulate the economy in ways they thought the laissez-faire was not doing well and it was the conservatives who were using the federal court aggressive pre-enforcement review in federal courts in ways that progressives thought were was sort of lawless and troublemaking, and it was the progressives who wanted to resist jurisdiction in ex parte Young to strip jurisdiction of our labor injunctions. Like the, I, I worry that the the line from Calhoun to to Cooper versus Aaron misses some times when things were the other way around. And- uh, yeah, that's fair. Although I do think that the you know mid twentieth century
0: segregationists were explicitly looking back to forebears like Calhoun and you know sure there's not like an intellectual clear intellectual line between you know between Calhoun and the progressives so, but maybe that's right. I mean but I do think that what you're saying maybe illustrates a larger point which is that who these kind of questions benefit like when you can get into federal court when you can't does change a lot depending on you know who's who's in power in the states and you know who's in power in the federal courts and what people are doing what kind of litigation is happening. I mean it is it is interesting that, you know, we're having this fight in a world where the federal courts are are currently quite conservative and not likely to be, to be particularly friendly to a lot of the rights that, you know, kind of people on the left want protected. And so maybe, you know, putting aside abortion, which is obviously a huge thing to just put aside, but maybe, you know, limiting the ability of people, you know, to get pre-enforcement review in federal court of things states are doing is – somehow going to be beneficial for
1: progressive state governments. Right. Or I, I just think this, yeah, this frame is sort of like, the, I mean, coming a few days after our discussions about Supreme Court reform and and complaints about the powers of the federal courts, you know, some people might say like, no, we need a federal statute to protect abortion accompanied by jurisdiction stripping to keep the federal courts from striking the statute down on commerce clause grounds. And let's just get the courts out of it entirely. And other people would say, just sort of my armchair would say, no, 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 you know, it's got to be us. Yeah. But, you know, broadly speaking, I mean, this is
0: a very – it's not – perhaps not without precedent, but it's a rare uh, example of a state saying, you know, very clearly, you know, saying we are trying to – we know that there's this thing that the federal courts and the Supreme Court have said is protected and we are just trying to get out from under that, right? We. You know, we we want to block people from being able to rely on that, and that's you know that is a that is a real threat, right? That's a real challenge to this
1: notion that you know we do have federal rights that that are worth enforcing and protecting. I really don't think that it's a challenge whether we have federal rights, but I agree it's rare. Uh, and it, it was you know again done by the progressive legislatures in Young, and then done by the racist legislatures in civil rights era. It, it is also. You know, one of the reasons it's rare is I think ultimately those kinds of strategies part of what they do is buy time, but by time until what? It, it only makes sense to to do these kinds of things if you think that there are some bigger changes afoot that are going to eventually uh, work to your, you know, work to your side. Which is maybe just another way of saying, you know, again, we're all just in the shadow of Dobbs. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it. You know, it seems like having having some clarity there is going to be uh, important, and it may just. If, if the court overturns Roe, this whole thing just becomes a a footnote. I mean it, but it it also raises this question I've I've been confused by, which is, you know, what what was the kind of real point of SB eight, right? In the sense that like it seems like if you have a court that's actually friendly to abortion rights, they're going to do even you know more than this court did in coming up with a way to let people challenge the law in federal court. And if you have a court that's hostile to abortion rights, do you need all this procedural chicanery or can you just pass the law and, you know, give the court the question, you know, just say, you know, decide it. Is it, is, does the constitution permit this? So I, I guess it was never obvious to me like why I don't think law actually works this way in the sense that there are like outcomes, uh, constitutional rights that the court really wants to protect. And then you just come up with the magic formula and you're like, nope. Oh, boxed in can't do anything about it that you know they find a way these doctrines are flexible enough and if they don't like they won't right but like
1: well is it possible the point is to buy time you know so we think back to like president biden's second eviction moratorium you know which was then set aside by the supreme court and he was explicit that like what was the point of doing this even though it wasn't necessarily going to work in the long run he's like well we'll buy time you know there'll be this period of time where it's in effect and that'll be good it's possible to reverse that the theory was. Maybe in the end the outcome will be the same either way, but but our law will be in effect for a while. Yeah,
0: although it wouldn't have been right. That's the point. It wouldn't have been had you had a friendlier court, right? If Justice Ginsburg doesn't die, Justice Barrett doesn't join the court, this law, the operation of this law, would have been stayed from day one, right? Uh yes. And then it would never have gone into effect, and then you know, we would have had this case and you'd have a five to four majority saying you can sue the clerks. Yes, but this law is only passed this year, right? Sure. But so so then uh, I'm just trying to figure out, trying to figure out the strategy. So if it's passed in a world where we know you've got five on the court who very likely are going to want to overturn Roe, then again, it means like,
1: so If the chief justice were the swing justice, maybe, maybe the law is a little less aggressive. Maybe, maybe you figure out something else that will- they'll work for a while that will that he won't enjoy. Maybe it just it, it just I I'm just struggling. It seems like a lot of trouble to
0: do something that ultimately is is either, you know, the merits or you you, you can't like escape the merits of it and the court is not going to be able to escape the merits of it for very long.
1: Right. So, I just if if you think that abortion is murder and that every abortion stopped is a life saved, then even if in the end, this all washes out to the same place. Uh, every day is a big deal, and obviously, that's true on the other side of the, the claim as well. Yeah, obviously,
0: there there will be as a result of this, there will be you know any number of women who would have obtained an abortion, would have wanted to or not able to, and that's you know that's one of the interests in favor of some kind of enjoying joining enjo- the law to maintain the status quo. Yeah, I guess i i I didn't understand that the. the The idea to be, you know, just, we're just going to, you know, gum things up for six months. It rather to be like, there was some thought that they, we've, we've figured out this clever loophole and then, you know, this is going to, you know, be the thing, this will work. Otherwise we, you know, just passed a regular ban on abortion and that wouldn't work.
1: If you're one of the, uh, you know, architects of the SB8 scheme and you want to write in and tell us what you're thinking, we'd be happy to, uh, play it or read it on the show. Depends what it says. I don't, don't, (laughs) Don't commit us to, I
0: don't know. I would. I don't, okay. Uh, you'll, you'll read Dan it. Dan might uh, be dummy. Yeah, I, will, I will not, I'll distance myself um, from what, who knows what Jonathan Mitchell might say. Yeah. And so, you know, just lingering on Justice Sotomayor's opinion a little bit. She says, you know, her opening, you know, introduction to the opinion, first couple of paragraphs are pretty sharp. She says the court should have put an end to this madness months ago before SB 8 first uh, went to an, into effect. It failed to do so then, and it fails to again today. And she says by foreclosing suit against state court officials and the state attorney general, the court effectively invites other states to refine SB 8's model for nullifying federal rights. That's sort of the point I was making, which is like this – you know, they they found a – the court found like a loophole to the loophole law, but that loophole can be closed. And she says, uh, the court thus betrays not only the citizens of Texas, but also our constitutional system of government. And so pretty strong. I think a preview of you know even stronger language we're likely to see when and if the court decides uh, in Dobbs to overturn Roe. Did anything about this, this case surprise you, the way this came out?
1: I mean, yeah, so- At the low level, so I think I was expecting something more like a 6-3 opinion with Justice Thomas Gorsuch and a leader dissenting, where the 6-3 would approve of either the state clerk's theory or the Texas attorney general can be sued as the responsible party for the private plaintiff's theory. This is sort of Justice Kagan's theory. This theory dropped entirely from the cases. So I was expecting something that was read more like a win for the of uh, the plaintiffs than this one does, that had a broader avenue of relief than this one did, and I expected to be more like six three.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, there there were people pushing the idea last year that you know there's really kind of three positions on the court. There's the liberal three. There's kind of center of the court, which is Roberts, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and then there's the more conservative three with Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito. And this this opinion didn't really follow that at all. You didn't have kind of a the chief justice able to kind of hold the middle and forge a compromise with Kavanaugh and Barrett. Justice Gorsuch writing the opinion is not who you want, even if you're getting a quarter of a loaf here. It's not he's not the person you want writing the opinion if you're if
1: you're the challengers to the law. Yeah, so I think I will say this 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 I think is better than anything I, I envisioned. So I sort of thought, I mean, I think I'm not sure whether I think Justice Thomas or Justice Gorsuch is the better reading of of Texas law, but if you were determined to find a route to to a challenge, this is one that. That really does very little, sort of uh, has very little doctrinal disobedience to get there. It's, I think, very uh, defensive. But see, this is what really- I'm talking about. Like, why
0: why do you care so much about the the doctrinal obedience in a in a fact pattern that hasn't been presented before?
1: Uh, I mean, not like, why so, is you know, that the most,
0: why is that more important than you know the kind of interest in you know giving people an avenue to challenge their constitutional rights when
1: they have no easy opportunity to do that? I mean, it's not doctrines for doctrines' sake. Uh, if I thought, I mean, so so you know, I'm I also obviously believe in text and history and other constitutional principles. I actually I think the the way the dissent and even the, the Chief Justice, both just, Chief Justice and Justice Sotomayor think of it, the sort of judicial supremacist frame, is one that I just I think is wrong and dangerous, uh, and one that's a lot of Supreme Court Justices believe in. So I'm glad to see some of the other Justices not succumb to it.
0: But you, you think that the court like stru- magically struck the kind of perfect balance in Ex parte Young and that that balance should not
1: need not be revisited? No, no, I think I mean, you know, I, uh, maybe Ex parte Young actually went too far in favor of pre-enforcement review. Uh, I'm not sure. And but maybe not. I, I'm also sympathetic to, to Justice Kavanaugh's view that, you know, again, it's not the perfect balance and I've got to recalibrate it a little bit a little bit each time. But again, I don't think that means that there always has to be a preliminary injunction stopping laws from going into effect, even when they're unconstitutional. A federal preliminary injunction, because of course the state courts are uh, also have concluded this is unconstitutional too. For now, but
0: so you would have
1: been peeved or annoyed if they
0: had tinkered with with the you know balance struck in Ex parte Young.
1: Uh, not pee- I guess not. necessarily peeved. It's more like I would have worried if they'd done it for the wrong reasons. I would have worried if justices and we talked about this a little bit before in the two sad, so sad doctrine. Uh, I would have worried that if justices who otherwise were sympathetic to these doctrines and not inclined to tinker with them, you know, tinkered with them here for the for the wrong reasons. Yeah, although
0: I mean, couldn't you just say, "Look, I thought I thought it struck the right balance, but now I've seen uh, it does create the situation where states that are hostile towards federal rights can come up with this workaround, and so let's, you know, just as experte Young recognized, exception uh, of sovereign immunity in the basis of." you know, a fact pattern that hadn't seen before. Let's do the same thing here. Right?
1: I'll say there are better and worse ways to write the opinion than I imagined. The version Dan Apps would have written was better than almost anything I imagined the justices would write. Um, and if even they've the, called even you-, Chief Justice, you Even Chief Justice Roberts? Uh, You're not going to say that. You're not going to say it. he would. I would write a better opinion than he would have. I was just going to say, to be clear, I think the United States suit should have been allowed to succeed. I thought all along that the US versus Texas solution is correct and defensible and tidy and clears up a lot of this stuff. And I was disappointed with how much everybody seemed to view that one as the that one as the hard one. So I would have rather seen yeah. a 10 page opinion in US versus Texas saying, once you know, once you get rid of sovereign immunity, almost all these procedures procedural problems go away. The United States has the same authority to enforce individual rights that it does to enforce the Commerce Clause. We said it in re Debs they have broad authority to enforce the Commerce Clause, they've brought authority here and dig Holman's health versus Jackson. I would. Have, I think they got the wrong dig.
0: Yeah, you know, that that avenue would be both better and worse in some ways, right? Because you know, it it makes the ability to get review of these laws dependent on who happens to be in
1: the White House. Yeah. And well, you know. so in this case, it would have provided much more complete relief to the challengers because in this case, the injunction would have been very effective. And if you just dig Holman South versus Jackson, you could again do the same thing and say, and you know, what are we going to do when they, you know, when that doesn't work when the White House is different? you know, we'll worry about that later. Yeah. And so why do you think they go this way rather than the other way? Uh, I don't, I mean, so they they definitely just had a much, much bigger skepticism about the, the, uh, the sovereign suits. And I don't know whether some of that is a hangover from the state standing cases. You know, they've seen what happens as more and more state AGs are constantly suing and they didn't want that to happen to the U S also, whether it's just the, they were so moved by Sam Bray and Adicha Bamzai's piece on federal equity and Henry Debs that they recognized they couldn't charge in there not knowing more what they were doing. But.
0: but by the way, why can't you know these citizens of Texas, you were affected by this just sue Texas in federal court? Uh sovereign I mean immunity. But like where does that come from? Common law. Because I'm looking at the Eleventh Amendment and doesn't seem to
1: contemplate that they can't do that. Yeah, it's not in the Eleventh Amendment. It's in Article 3. Or it's actually it pre exists Article 3. Or the court has held that it does, right? The court has held that it does as as you know, James Madison and John Marshall promised at the ratification of the constitution that it would. Uh, and as Steve Sachs and I defend extensively in the misunderstood 11th amendment and our other writings on sovereign immunity, yeah. but it's not a foregone conclusion, right? You, you could, you could carve out an exception, another exception, right? Yeah. Well, actually, so, and also Congress could cover an exception. So in current doctrine, Congress can abrogate sovereign immunity under the 14th amendment. Section 1983 is legislation to enact the 14th amendment. So, all Congress would need to do is amend Section 1983 to say actually you can sue states under Section 1983, and I will add it's maybe even Section 1983 should be read that way. The court read it not to abrogate sovereign immunity uh, in a case called the Will versus Department of Michigan State Police that Catherine Crocker at William Mary has argued is probably wrong, and uh, that maybe Section 1983 should be read that way. And her article is very good, might be right. So that could be that would have yeah. that would have been the best way to resolve this case. That would. But have
0: I mean the, the point is. Ultimately, that there's a lot of obstacles, some of which are, some of which are the courts on creation, or at least
1: some of which are are not clearly but, dictated by the sources that the court consults. I mean, none of this stuff falls off of the page of the Constitution. I think sovereign immunity is one of the most historically rooted uh, pieces. Of these doctrines, by comparison to qualified immunity and standing, and a lot of other stuff, but but yes, none
0: of this stuff falls off the page. Yeah, I mean. You could make, an. I mean, certainly you could argue that some of that doesn't survive the Civil War, Reconstruction Amendments. I mean, this isn't math again, right? This isn't, there, there's just, there's a lot of flexibility here and the court is making choices and, you know, maybe some of those choices are better and more clearly compelled by materials and other choices. But to the extent that the larger project here is just sort of trying to set up a system that says, well, you know, nothing we can do about it. This is just, our hands are totally tied. I just, I don't think that's right. And I don't think that, I'm so not then, sure, I'm not sure that people will buy that.
1: I guess I I do think this Dan should be referred to the Dan earlier in the episode. I think it's good for the court not to think about this as making choices precisely because once they think about it as making choices, they're going to make them in even more policy influenced ways. Um, the policy influences will come even further to the, to the forefront. Well, of depends. Brains. I mean, it depends what they think they should be making choices about. Well, Sure. Right.
0: I mean, I I guess I I mean, that's that's assertion is not obvious. Right. If you I mean, if you say like this is an area where the legal materials don't clearly dictate an answer and there has to be some room for judges to kind of work with the doctrine to make, you know, operationalize the Constitution, you could you could think, okay, well, that lets me like just consult like whether this is going to help Democrats or Republicans. Or you could say, okay, gosh, in areas where I have this kind of discretion, I have to be really careful to come up with rules that are not going to—they're going to be kind of outcome neutral. Whereas if you just say, "Oh, it's all just dictated by you know close read of ex parte young," there's a lot of motivated reasoning that can go into that. So I don't know. I don't. I think sure. it could go either I,
1: way. all I mean to say is so. One of the most important things Ronald Warkin was right about was that even when the materials don't clearly dictate an answer, that doesn't mean that like you have to think of what you're doing as choosing. Like there could still be still be the case that like figuring out how to fit together the principles of the federal system, including the importance of judicial supremacy and rights and all those things, is really hard and not everybody would do it the same way. But still, I think the judges themselves shouldn't think of it as like choosing so much as trying to fit it all together in the best way, and that the choice might actually be required even if other people would make different ones.
0: Um yeah I, I guess I don't I don't I don't have a strong intuition about that about which which is better whether we want them to be you know operating under an illusion or having people be a little bit more honest about what's going on would
1: actually lead them to make better decisions I don't know it could go either I, way Why don't I well, I'm not even sure it's about honesty I just I think justice Kagan was right to say it's law all the way down
0: Yeah I'm not saying it's not but I think that you know part of law is you know and part of, or at least part of law has been for quite some time is judges kind of crafting doctrine to kind of make make sense of these you know reconcile mm-hmm. these like competing principles and broad interests and make you know make the constitutional system work right I yeah. I'm not saying that's not law I'm just saying it's it requires a certain different kind of reasoning than saying like okay what did Ex parte young
1: say about this on you know page 192 I agree with all that and actually and I think one of the one of the worst things some conservative judges and and thinkers have done is to make it seem like... Once you're doing anything other than looking at page 192 of X. Part Young or reading the text of the Constitution, that you're just in like wild policymaking land, uh, I don't think that's right, and I don't think we should encourage the sense that that's right. I think there's something more disciplined going on. I think we agree about that, even if we don't necessarily agree on exactly what it is or what to call it. Okay. Well, maybe on that point of agreement, we should
0: move towards wrapping things up. And did you have anything else you wanted to say about uh, this case? I feel like we've... No. Well, I fear that uh, we will be revisiting the, the issues presented by SB8 and uh, about the constitutional right to abortion more generally, probably a lot this term in our remaining episodes. This is we've probably already our third or fourth episode in which we've we've discussed this, and I think it's going to keep coming back. I think that's going to be you know this is an abortion
1: term. This is maybe the abortion term. So uh yeah you, you, ne- you never know if there's gonna be another one even more so but i yeah I agree this is gonna be uh a regular feature yeah well i will look forward to maybe
0: next time hopefully finding an issue that's a little bit less fraught to talk about because it can be it can be fun just to talk about you know these fed courts doctrines without these huge culture war clashes that you know really affect people in very intimate ways um in the background.
1: Yeah. I was uh, talking to another federal courts professor about, you know, do you assign Holman's Health versus Jackson on the first day of federal courts or the last day of federal courts? Uh, and I think there are some some professors who are in the first day category, like you should always be thinking about this kind of case as framing all of federal jurisdiction problems, and some more like me who are last day people, like you know, this is important. You need to you need to get into it, but it's helpful to first work through these doctrines in a slightly uh, more removed context before we, yeah. Yeah, that is one of the hard things about the whole field of federal courts and federal jurisdiction. These
0: really kind of seemingly very technical, abstruse doctrines about you know when you can get into federal court and what how federal courts can do things and what power they have. But much of it, not all of it, but much of it occurs with these you know really really high stakes questions in the background.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all our endeavors. Please remember to rate or review this podcast on the uh, iTunes store or wherever you've found it. It helps other people find the podcast and uh, helps us get more listeners and helps encourage us to keep us going.
0: You can email us at pod at com. You can leave us a message uh, on our hotline at 314-649-3790. And you can buy merchandise at store.dividedargument.com. And for one day, on one day only, Thursday, December 16th, you can get 10% off merchandise with the code SUPER10, S-U-P-E-R-1-0. So take a look if you want a t-shirt.